You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, anyone here ever met a Navy SEAL? Yeah, couple. Anyone a Navy SEAL in here that I should know and I just don't? Okay, just wanted to make sure. Huge amount of respect for Navy SEALs, right? Those people are cut from a different cloth. I, I love, if I'm going to watch something on television, it's got to be something that I cannot do, right? That's why I lo- like watching sport, because I'm impressed. I can't catch a ball like that. I can't make a jump shot like that. It's impressive. And I love, I don't know if you've ever watched these Navy SEAL documentaries, because, I mean, maybe, maybe in a different world, maybe if I had like six, seven years to prepare, maybe I could do it. But these men and women are just cut from a different cloth, aren't they? If you've ever watched any documentary coverage, there's one week called Hell Week in SEAL training. It is five and a half days of grueling, cold, wet filth. And while we call it Hell Week, I'm sure the participants feel like it's much longer than a week that they live over the course of those hours. And one of the features of Hell Week that I find really interesting is the bell. And the bell sits there. And at any time, if you no longer want to be wet, if you no longer want to be sweaty, if you no longer want your muscles to ache, if you finally want to sleep, if you want to get a good meal, all you got to do is ring the bell. And that lets everyone else know that you've had it. You give up. And in Bud's Week, there are more people than not that actually do give up along the journey. And it's a signal to everyone else that bell that they've left the group. And let's be real. If you've ever watched those documentaries, it's encouraged at many times by the leaders. They're screaming at you, give up, quit, ring the bell, get rid of you, we don't want you here. And in the middle of the obstacle course, in the middle of the night runs, it might seem very appealing, and many do, but those aren't the only calls from the battlefield. If you ever watch those documentaries, those aren't the only voices that are lifted up in chorus. While those commanders are calling on these men to give up, there is another group of voices that echoes into the night as people are moving towards the bell. And it's the voices of their comrades that are saying, don't quit. Remember why you've done this. Don't let everything else be in vain. Remember your goals. Remember what you're striving for. Recall where you want to be. Finish this with me. You got this. We got you. And the choice for that sailor in, the mor- in that moment is to figure out which call is more convincing. They have to choose which voice to listen to, 
In one of the documentaries, they were interviewing one of the sailors at the end, and I'm paraphrasing this, but he said, I would have never made it through Hell Week if it wasn't for my buddies cheering me on. Let's be real. Navy SEALs are crazy. Not like psychiatric ward crazy, right? But like, they're just awesome. I thought about it this week. How much more in life would I accomplish if I had a Navy SEAL tethered to me at all moments? How many more goals that I would have set would I have finished if I had a Navy SEAL right next to me? In the text today, it brings us a similar calling. Everything the author has said for the past two weeks has brought us to this moment. It's a moment of endurance. It's a moment to remember the reason to continue. It's the reason for suffering. It's the reason we walk through pain. This text is screaming, don't ring the bell. Don't give up. I'm with you. Endure. We're going to read the whole section again because it's designed to be together. But the focus is going to be on verses 32 through 39 today. So turn with me to that text of Scripture, chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. Please stand with me. We'll stand today as we go through the text. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, 
and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's review where we've been. Section one was the let us phrases to spur on one another. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Let us, it pointed us forward by reminding us what was behind us by reminding us of a God who had purchased us, by reminding us that we do not march in the battle alone, and by setting our sight on the prize before us. Section one was a charge to move forward. Now, section two was a warning. With all that we have received, we must not trample the gift of God. We must not spur grace For our failure to submit to God in light of the grace of God will lead to destruction. And now we've arrived at section three. And we're given a charge again. But it is not just a call to move forward. It's not just a call to remember. It's ultimately a call to finish, to persevere, to endure. You see, to endure, we need to learn. Whoop, they turned it off. That was really nice of them. To endure, we need to learn to look back and to look forward. That's the key to endurance. So let's begin by looking back and listen again to the words of Scripture. Hebrews 10, 32 through 33. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. We got to look back. It's our call to recall, to remember, to think about, to look back. To the original audience, the only need to look back to see what they had accomplished. There was a time in their lives where they had come to saving faith, where they were once Jews without a Messiah, and now they were Jews with a Messiah who met all the Old Testament promises that they had been so long for waiting for as a people. And they were enlightened. They had faith. And where did that faith lead them? Did that faith lead them to an ease of life? Did that lead them to comfort, to convenience, to to easy street? No. It led them to the exact opposite They had hard struggles. There was sufferings. There was public humiliation. There was reproach. There was affliction. The author is not saying, recall the good times, right? Which is what we do all the time. If we ever get into a hard season of life, so many of our TED Talks that you might put on on YouTube remind you, well, just recall the good times in life. Recall the happy times that you went through. Maybe those will come back again. That's the American way of handling struggle, right? But what does the author say? Recall the hard times. Why on earth would he do this? Because God, in his wisdom, uses the hard times 
to strengthen us into what we find today. You might know this analogy. Any blacksmith will tell you that the fire either breaks you or strengthens you. Any gym rat will tell you that it's the pain that leads to gain. Right? Any good marriage counselor will tell you that you will find out the strength of your relationships not in the ease of life, but in the hard times. Any good coach will tell you that you find the strength of your team not when you face the cupcake opponent, but when you face the opponent that is much greater skill than your own team. We know this about life. We know this when we reflect on life, but so often we don't believe it when it comes to our faith. We don't believe it when it comes to our sufferings. Romans 5 reminds us of the good that can come out of sufferings. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Navy SEALs that completed Hell Week looked into the eyes of those that finished with them and they would forever remember their comrades, forever recall the battle, and forever be united in the endeavors to come. Likewise, the Christians of the day, they had all endured great suffering. They had all endured trials, so much so that when they were even in the midst of their own trials, they still joined others in theirs. Hebrews 10.33 says this, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes partnering, partners with those who were treated. Hear me, this is one of the reasons the American church is so weak. Our theology of suffering is garbage, right? The prosperity gospel tells you that if you're suffering, clearly you don't have enough faith. The American gospel will tell you that if you're suffering, you need not. There's a better way to do the Christian life. But the gospel tells us that if you are suffering, it is to remind you of the greater glory that is indeed ahead. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We must have a proper theology of suffering if we are to engage the world and if we're to engage life properly. Here's the fear. Is that you get to these moments in life and you're on your knees and you think, Lord, I have nothing to recall. Here is the fear I have for our church, that we will waste our suffering, that we'll waste our trials. And when we spur on one another to remember, we will have nothing that comes to mind. If you want a good book on suffering, I'm going to give you what I think is the best one. It's called the book of James. You can find it in the Bible. 
okay? If you know, have never read James, I'm going to give you the outline of the whole book, okay? This is what James is trying to say. While we spend our time asking how to get out of our suffering, the Lord is helping us learn what to get out of our suffering. I'm going to say that again because it's profound. While we spend our time asking how to get out of our suffering, the Lord is helping us learn what to get out of our suffering. Which is a summation of my first fear for our church. That is that we would waste our suffering. At some point in the midst of our trials and tribulations, we must learn to ask, what would the Lord have me learn from this? What is there to gain? What am I learning to give to others from this? Too often we spend our times in trials trying to, get, trying to figure out how to get out of suffering instead of what to get out of suffering. And we need to learn how to have a proper view of suffering as Christians. And because of it, because we fail to learn how to get what from suffering, we don't recall anything when we walk with the Lord. Here's the second fear I have for our church when it comes to a proper theology of suffering, is that is we'll avoid it. We will avoid suffering. This is the American principle. If there's anything Americans do really well, we avoid it. We'd, ra we'd rather get a handout than work for it. Right? We don't take risks. Especially if there might be suffering on the other side of it. Okay, young men and women, you need to know this. I'm not saying this about you, but you need to know this about your generation. All the studies have been done. You are the most risk-averse generation that has ever lived. Ever lived. That's not your fault. That's the culture you've grown up in. But you need to know that, right? Because you have a chance to go far beyond the potential of your peers as you engage in risk. Because there will be less people your age doing it. Parents, that's not their fault. That's ours. We've, we've, we've raised them with such safetyism. And we've modeled a lack of risk-taking, and then we wonder why they don't risk anything. We have to do that better as a church. We have to. We need to model risk-taking to the next generation. We must risk suffering if we will enter and extend the kingdom of God. And know that to risk suffering, know this is to actually enter into it. How don't we take risks? How, how is that modeled, right? Well, I can't share my faith with my coworker. They might report me to HR. Risk not taken. I, I can't invite one of my friends from school to a church event. They might think I'm weird. Risk not taken. I can't give my bonus that I just got at work to that missionary that just came through a church a couple weeks ago. I might not have enough money at the end of my month. Risk not taken. I can't take a week off of work to go on a missions trip. How, how will I be able to provide? Risk not taken. I can't disciple someone twice a month. I need to spend that time on other things that I'm more excited about. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I, you get the point. We are a people of excuses. We are a people of excuses. What is profound 
about the Christian life is that if you want to see a movement of God, you have to be willing to risk suffering and you must be willing to enter into it when you see it. You must. We must be willing to endure suffering. If you want to see our neighbors come to Christ, we must be willing to enter into their suffering. If you want to see our children raised in admonition of the Lord, we must be willing to enter into their suffering. If we want to see our culture changed, we must be willing to enter into the suffering of those that are on the outsides that are ostracized and abused. We must be willing to link arms with those who are in the pits of life and say to them, I will not leave you. And when they ask, why on earth will you not leave me? This is a pit that I am in and it is not even your pit. We can respond with confidence because Jesus never left mine. Jesus is greater than all the sufferings this world has to offer. And when we realize that, when we realize that, that sufferings don't seem so debilitating, and we can begin to respond the way the people in Hebrews 10 did. How did they respond? For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better possessions and an abiding one. Here, Jesus is greater than your sufferings. The sufferings you entered into, willingly. See the verse. For you had compassion on those who... I'll go back so you can see it. For you had compassion on those who were in prison. Okay, prisons back in that day were not two hots in a cot. Okay, prisons back in those days, if you wanted to get fed in many of them, someone had to come from the outside and provide you a meal. And so Christians during that time would seek out those that were suffering because of their own foolishness many of the times and provide them hope of a meal and hope of salvation. Jesus is greater also than the sufferings done against you, not just those you enter into willingly, but those done against you. See the verse. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Many of the Hebrews had lost their family homes because they had left the faith of their fathers for the sake of Jesus. In this community, it'd be like someone taking your family farm because of your faith. And they did it with great joy. That's how they responded. Look, if the government started to confiscate the homes of Christians, would you feel great sorrow? I know I would. I like my stuff. I like the home above my head. But in that moment, I hope that the Lord would remind me that that is not my forever home. And my stuff is not going with me to heaven. I don't care if you put a U-Haul on the back of the hearse. It's not making it there. But my hope is in something much greater, much more wonderful, that even if I have to endure hard sufferings in this life, by the way I respond to it, I demonstrate that Jesus is greater to my neighbors. How would you respond 
How does, that, how does the answer to that question reveal what is greater in your life? If you don't know how you would respond, I would encourage you to take some time to this afternoon to recall, as the text says, to look back. Look back at what the Lord has already brought you through. Some of you will need to sit down this afternoon and literally spell this out. I remember this trial, Lord. I remember this suffering. I remember how you got me through it. Recall the works of the Lord, both in your life and the life of your family and the life of your ancestors. My grandfather was a a union head of a paper company in upstate New York. And someone had the audacity to share the gospel with the union leader. And he came to saving faith. And that forever changed the directory direction of my family. All his kids came to saving faith. And because of my mother being one of his kids, I too came to saving faith. Oh, how good of the Lord to save... Y'all would have loved Milner, okay? Would save Milner from his sin and direct not only the change in his path, but the path of his family. I can look back at that and rejoice. I can look back at my father's side of the family. If I would have stayed in the Presbyterian church, I was six months away from being ordained in the Presbyterian church, I would have been a third generation Presbyterian preacher. My grandfather pastored a church. I'm blanking on the little city's name, actually in Ohio. And my great-grandfather pastored a church in Pennsylvania. I can see the Lord's goodness work throughout the lives of my family. And I pray that as you look back at the trials that come, you not only look at your own life, but look at the one who brought you to saving faith. Where was the Lord gracious to them along the way? Recall your history. And if maybe you're first generation, maybe you're the first one in your family that has given their life to Jesus, recall the saints of Scripture. We're going to see that next week. It's one of my favorite verses, chapters in the Bible. We have this history that we can cling to because we are the children of Abraham. And we can see what the Lord has done throughout the history of the world, and we can marvel. May we recall, may we look back this afternoon, but may we not stop there. May we look forward as well. Hebrews 10, 35 through 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We look forward to, we strive for the prize. Navy SEALs will talk about their bud's graduation as one of the most proudest days of their life. And it should be. It's the first day they're called a SEAL. It's the first day that they get to wear the pin with pride. It's the day that will forever change their path. But all of them will say, that was not the last day of my journey. All of them will say that was the first How much more the Christian life? Christian, you will receive glory. You will receive honor. You will receive peace. 
you will receive Jesus himself. You will receive rest. You will receive an eternity without the sins of life being burdened to you. The prize we strive for is greater than anything we can imagine for us in a broken state. We cannot even imagine the joy that is to come in all of eternity. This is our great reward. We get to strive for this prize, for it is offered to those who endure, offered to those who finish the race. Paul reminds us of the race of life in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. I'm convinced Paul was a runner. He talks about running more than any other, like, sport. He probably snuck away to watch the Greek runners of the day. When he was a kid, I bet Paul was the one that was running from the synagogue, right, with his buddies as they were leaving on Saturdays. I love his runs. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you might obtain it. Hebrews will speak of the same race in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We must keep our eyes on the finish line, church. We must. We must keep our eyes on the prize. We must keep our eyes on each other as we run. And we must be reminded that we are surrounded by many cheering us on, including, I believe, the saints who have gone before us. They cheer us on from heaven with great joy. I want to play a clip for you. The way we do that on PowerPoint, I'm giving you instructions. You probably know how to do it. You'll switch to the next one, and then you'll actually have to click the thing with the mouse. But it's one of my favorite clips. Some of you were alive for this, some of you weren't. Derek Redman. Tom Hammond and Craig Massback back Running at the Olympic semifinal. Olympic Stadium in Barcelona coming up to the men's 400-meter semifinals. Here are the lane assignments. Steve Lewis in lane three. Top four to Wednesday's final. Steve Lewis in lane three. Roberto Hernandez out quickly in four. Now down the back stretch. Ismael on the left of the screen is running very, very quickly. And inside of Lewis, Sunday Bada, Nigeria. And Derek Redman of Great Britain has pulled up with an injury. Redman is out. Derek Redman, the British record holder and an important member of that British 4 by 400 meter relay team as he doesn't want anybody to help him. It'll be Lewis to win in 44.50. Look at this. He's going to try to finish his semifinal race. The British have a certain tradition of running, which you have to respect. A bizarre finish to this first semifinal in the men's 400 meters. Derek Redmond of Great Britain pulled up with an injury halfway down the back stretch. He's fighting off those trying to help him to finish the race in his lane. And now the pain too much.
applause swelling throughout Olympic Stadium as Redmond, with assistance this time, approaches the finish line he had wanted so desperately to reach. That is the Olympic spirit. Tom Havenick. How does that speak to you? I think it's a beautiful analogy of the Christian life. If you, like me, you might have set out on this life thinking you were running a very different race for a very different prize. And you might have also come to a conclusion that that prize was fleeting and found a prize in Jesus worth running for. You know, Jesus and you began to run for that prize that is satisfying. And you might have thought, I've arrived. This is the good life. This, is, this running with Jesus is great. And it is. But no one said it would be easy. You might tear your hamstring along the way, which, is, which as we watch Derek, is pretty debilitating for a runner. But like Derek, we have a father who runs with us in the race. Did you notice in the video Derek's response when people tried to help him? At the very beginning, they're trying to help him up, and he's like pushing him off. I got this, I got this. And he starts going, and if you see in the race where his father catches him, there's this moment where Derek doesn't realize who it is, right? And then he realizes it's his dad. And in that moment, he breaks because he's broken. He's in need of someone to help him cross the finish line. When we realize that we're broke, that we're sinners, and that we have a Father who moves towards us, our response can be sweet as honey. For we have a God that runs with us down the race, and we have a cloud of witnesses all around us cheering us on. But the analogy can be expanded even further. While God is with us in the trials of life, he also gives us each other. We don't run alone. I've said it the last two weeks. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We have each other. And as we enter into each other's sufferings, we model to a broken world that we need not run the race of life alone. And when we run the race with those outside the church, we model to them that there is a prize worth running for. And when it gets hard, we model to them that we can endure because Jesus is greater than our sufferings. When the devil and this world are yelling at you, ring the bell, don't give up, or give up, quit. We should be firm in our encouragement to one another. Don't give up, you can do this. If you give up now, everything that you will have endured will be for in vain. Finish this with me. You got this. We got you. Church, I am willing to bleed with you to get you across the finish line.
because my Savior has already bled for me. Jesus is greater, and because he is, I can enter into the sufferings of others and bear them with you. I promise you I will do my best to model this. I will fail you at times. But I'm going to strive, church. I'll ask that you do the same. Not for me, but for one another. This is how we run. This is how we move forward in life. We spur on one another. We encourage one another. And it is when we model how to suffer well together that we scream hope to a dying world. You got this. You can do this. Endure. Don't give up. Don't ring the bell. Hebrews 10.39 We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their very souls. Amen.